Well, I'm also very excited about the possibilities of connecting with uh, people there in the country of Panama through this. Um, I, one of the things Clip and I were talking this past week, one of the things we were talking about was the possibility of when we have a mission trip in the future going to Panama and allowing you to meet the child that you've been praying for. I think that'll be a pretty neat thing to do. So uh, just be uh, praying about it and get involved. We need your, we need your help in this. All right, uh, if you haven't already, if you would take your study guide out of your bulletin, grab a clipboard and a pen from the book rack, and uh, let's get started here. Today we're going back to our infrequent series, uh, which is called Frequently Asked Questions. I call it an infrequent series simply because we just hit this particular series when questions come up. When someone asks a question that um, puts me in a frame of mind that God is directing me to use this in a service, then, then we just insert that into the service as it comes up. And today, we're going to be dealing with a very, a very uh, serious uh, topic of hell. A very serious topic of hell. Questions relating to the topic of hell. Now one thing that I would like for you to understand, most of you probably do, but just in case there's some confusion in your mind, let me clear it up for you. Uh, a lot of times we confuse hell and the lake of fire and we consider it to be one place. Uh, the Bible is very clear that, that hell and the lake of fire are individual places. Yes. The suffering is very similar. It's, it's, it's acquainted with fire and brimstone and, and that gnashing of teeth. There's a lot of torment involved. And so it is very similar in both places, and yet they are distinct places. Hell is something that's taking place now. Uh, the Bible talks about it being in the center of the earth. That people who die without knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are put in this holding place called hell where they are awaiting judgment. Someday there will be what's called the great white throne judgment where Jesus will sit in judgment over those who have rejected Jesus Christ. And in that time, he will then sentence them. The Bible says that they will hear the sentence, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. You will be cast into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And when you get to that stage, after the great white throne judgment, then we're talking about the lake of fire then. The Bible says that hell and Hades is cast into the lake of fire with those who have rejected Jesus Christ. So, while that is the case, that we're talking about distinct and separate places, because of the fact that most of the questions that are asked are categorizing these as the same, I want to approach it in that manner. Now, I'll try, when it's, uh, when it's clear which one we're talking about, I'll try to point it out and say, no, we're talking about hell here, we're talking about the lake of fire here. We're going to work our way through a lot of scripture this morning. And so you can just jot these references down, go back and read them later. But, uh, but I just want to categorize the, the discussion this morning dealing with both subjects together, okay? So hell and the lake of fire, just so you have an understanding of what's going on. Alright, so if you've got your notes out, question number one, let's just go ahead and jump into this. Is hell real? Your first fill-in, question number one, is hell real? 
Now, I imagine that from the way I've already started talking about this particular topic, you understand that I have a belief that hell is very real. And you might say, well, Tom, why would you say that? You've never been there. And I'm thankful that I have never been there. You're right in that. You may say, but, but you've never seen a picture of it. You've never seen a snapshot of it. No one's ever brought you pictures back to show you what it looked like. You've never even seen a glimpse of it. And, and I can, to the best of my ability, tell you, and the best of my memory, tell you, I don't think I've even ever had a dream about it. And so you may say, well, how do you know hell is real if you've never seen pictures, you've never been there? I can tell you out of, out of my own study, my own research, two ways that I believe hell is real. And number one, because the Bible teaches that it's real. The Bible teaches that it's real. And you don't have to go very long into the New Testament, into Jesus' teachings and what Jesus is talking about to understand that the Bible is talking about hell as a very real place. Hell and the lake of fire being very real places. In fact, even in the prophetic verses, the book of Revelation tells us, Revelation 21.8, our text verse for the day, you have this verse listed for you. It says, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So the Bible is very clear. Now, we're not going to get into a lot of information under this particular question because we're going to deal with a lot of verses as we move on that will support this. You'll see that very clearly. But, but one of the reasons I believe very strongly that hell, the lake of fire, is real is because the Bible is very clear that it's real. In fact, if I was to say I don't believe in hell, that it's literal, that it's real, then I would have to discount a big portion of what the Bible says. I would have to actually rip it out and say, well, okay, it's true in places and it's not true in other places. Now, there's a real problem develops if I take on that mentality. If I start picking and choosing what I believe is right, what I believe is truthful, and what I believe is not truthful, then all of a sudden I'm the one that's judging God's Word. And all of a sudden I don't know what to believe and what not to believe anymore. I mean, okay, so if this part isn't true, but this part I think is, how do I really know that? I mean, how can I accept it? When God told us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, that the Holy Spirit moved upon godly men and they wrote as He led them to write, since this is the Word of God, the working of God, if I can't believe all of it, then how can I believe any of it? A big problem develops if I say part of the Word of God is not true. And so as I read through what God shows us in the Bible about hell, and I begin to, to open up the pages to see God very specifically directing our hearts and attention to a very real place called hell, then who am I to discount what the Word of God says? So number one, I believe that it's a real place because the Bible says so. But number two, not only do we see it in, contained in God's Word, but we find it directly from the lips of Jesus Christ. Number two, I believe it because Jesus said it. Jesus, in quite a few passages in the Gospels, 
uh, refers to this place in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. But then he's going to give us someone to be afraid of. And who is that? He says, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, if Jesus did not believe that hell was a real place, why would he have even mentioned it in such a statement? So we believe that the Bible is very truthful, and therefore the Word of God is telling us there's a place called hell. Jesus is telling us there's a place called hell, and therefore we own it, we believe it, we accept it. The second question then jumps in very clearly to ask the question, well, what is hell like then? Okay, if it's a real place... What's it like? What I want to do is work our way through three passages of Scripture. And again, if you would, write these references down. Go back and read them for yourself later on. I think you'll find it very helpful. All of these, Jesus is talking. The first one, Mark chapter 9, verse 48. Jesus, in talking of hell, says it's a place where the, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The fire is not quenched. Some people talk about hell and they say, well, it just burns itself out. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that hell is an unquenchable flame. That there will never be a time, we're not talking about hell because it's thrown in the lake of fire now, we're talking about the lake of fire. That, that the lake of fire is an unquenchable flame. That it will never die out. Let's move on. Jesus also in Matthew chapter 13 verses 41 and 42 said, The Son of Man will send His angels. They will gather out of the kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Can you imagine a place so awful that it's described time and time again in the Bible as being a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Can you imagine being captive in a place like that? Can you imagine being held in such a place that would require gnashing of teeth to deal with the suffering? I can't. I don't want to. I don't want to imagine that place. And yet the Bible talks about hell in such a way. Jesus also gives us the greatest illustration of hell in Luke chapter 16 when he lays out for us the story, a very real story of a man who was very rich. And he talks about this man dying and what happens after his death. Listen to this story. Luke 16 verses 19 through 31. It says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. In other words, he ate very well. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed of the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments, in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. I want to pause in the story for just a second to give you a characteristic of hell. I want you to understand something that there is a great myth about concerning hell. 
that when you go to hell, you just burn up and it's all over. That you don't really know what's going on. The unfortunate reality of that is that that is not true. We see in the story of this man who was very rich, who died. The Bible says that he lift up his eyes. He was very much aware of what was happening to him. He was very much aware of what was going on. The Bible says he lift up his eyes being in torment. Immediately in the torment of hell. Let me continue reading. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. I want to stop there. Because we have this notion that even though God is righteous and God is just and God is holy, that there will come a time when he looks upon the plight of people who have rejected his son and have wound up in hell and eventually in the lake of fire and he will have mercy upon them and will remove them from the situation. But that is also very much incorrect. The... the, the The righteousness of God requires Him to demand the full payment of what we've done in rebellion against God. And the problem is that because we have rebelled against God, we've sinned against Him, we've broken His commandments, we have created such a a problem for ourselves that we can never satisfy the, the debt for our sin. We can never pay it in full. And with such a problem, the Bible lets us know that we will suffer forever and forever. When Lazarus looked up and said, Abraham, would you just let Lazarus come and dip the tip of his finger in water? And cool my tongue. And Abraham said we can't do that. We'll read on to see a little bit more about it. Verse 25. Abraham said son remember. And in your lifetime you received your good things. Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And here's the problem. Besides all of this. Between us and you there is a great gulf fixed. So that those who want to pass from here to you cannot nor can those from there pass to us. He's talking to the rich man and he says, Bud, the problem is you will never leave here until it's time for you to stand judgment. Stand before the judgment of Christ. And at that point then what you will be thrown into is even worse than what you have here. You will be there forever. There is no escape. One of the characteristics of hell is that it is eternal. There is no end to the suffering. The rich man then had a a different thing to offer to Abraham, a different request of him in verse 27. He said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him into my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Now let me address an additional problem we have 
in the way people communicate about hell. People will tell you, listen, hell is hell's not that bad. When we get there, man, I'm just going to get all my friends together and we're just going to have a big party. If hell was set in such a way that it would, it, would, it would satisfy or sustain such a thought, the rich man would have never had a problem with his brothers coming there. But the problem for him was he knew the suffering and the torment that he was enduring. And he did not want his brothers to endure the same thing. And so he cried out, would you just send Lazarus to my brothers so that they don't come here? Now, while there are many other passages of Scripture we could relate and we could talk about regarding the matter of hell or the lake of fire, I think this serves the purpose of showing us a little bit about what hell is like. Now, there's a third question that jumps in here, and this one seems a little bit off, off of, of what we're doing, what we're talking about, but I think it, 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 because it serves such an important thought, I want to at least share my opinion on this one. And then what I'm going to tell you is, is my opinion. I'm going to give you scripture, a scriptural reference why I feel the way I do, why I believe this, why I think God has impressed me in such a way. But I want you to know at the end of the day, this is opinion. This is not me laying out the Word of God and saying, this is what God says. This is my opinion. If you have a different opinion about this matter, well, I won't fight you over it. We won't argue over it. I promise you. Uh, you can believe how God leads you, and I'll believe the way God leads me. But it involves a question that I get asked occasionally, which is simply this. When, number three, your next feeling, when do you tell someone their loved one is in hell? When is the right time to tell someone that their loved one is in hell? My opinion on this matter is that that time doesn't come. Because of the fact that I don't really know, I don't know the heart of anyone here. I may know what it appears to be. I may be able to see fruit from your life, but I don't know your heart. And I don't know if that person had uh, on his deathbed or her deathbed an opportunity to know Christ and took it. I don't know if, if in the process of time uh, through the life of this individual that there was an encounter with Christ. And they lived in rebellion after that and that's the reason God took them out. I don't, I don't know that. I don't claim to answer that. And the reason I don't is because you don't find in Scripture where anyone ever goes to somebody to inform them that their loved one is in hell. At least not that I could recall through the time that I spent thinking about it. What you do find is even in the story we just talked about with the rich man who went to hell, when Jesus was speaking it and telling it to a large congregation of people, he didn't even call the guy by name. Maybe his family was there. He didn't even call them by name. I don't know why he didn't, but, but my thought process, the way I'm leaning right now, is to say that, that maybe he didn't want it to get back to the family. You know, I don't see the need instilling the little bit of hope that exists that, hey, there's at least a chance. There's at least a chance. 
I don't think that's my place. I don't think it's my responsibility. Now, in the same, in the same token, I think that it's important that we speak truth. Someone comes to me and says, do you think my loved one's in hell? My response is going to be, you know what, I don't know. I don't know, but I can tell you for sure how you get to heaven and avoid the judgment of God in hell. And I'm going to share that with them. And the reason is because whether they know it or not, whether I know they know it or not, I want to make sure. And so I'm going to tell them so that they won't dump that same burden on their loved ones when they pass. I want them to know, hey, here's the way I can know Christ as my Savior so I don't leave this same problem for my, for my family, for my friends to have to wonder, to have to be concerned. And so I'm going to tell them the truth. But I also don't think that there's a need to overdo it and a need to, to, to break someone's heart when we don't actually fully know. To my recollection, there's only been one time when I have preached a funeral and said, this person is in hell. You say, well, that sounds pretty harsh. But let me tell you, I was asked to do that by the granddad. 19-year-old boy, uh, young man, overdosed. Um, and his dad came to me before the funeral and gave me complete freedom. He said, let me tell you something. There's going to be a lot of kids here today, and there were tons of them. And he said, I want you to tell them why my son died, my grandson died, and where he is, and how they can keep from following him there. And based upon his suggestion and his request, I spoke it just as clearly as I am now. I told them. And I used the information, why him and not me? Because when I was his age, I was doing the same thing he was doing. I was into drugs. I was a drunk. And so why, why is he there in the casket? Why not me? Why wasn't I there at his age? And then shared with them about hell and what it's like and what this young man was going through. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done, and yet it was one of the most rewarding things to watch those teenagers and those kids in their early 20s respond to that message. And so while I don't think it's necessary to crush the dreams, I think it's necessary to be truthful and to share God's plan of salvation with those who might would ask such a thing. Let me move on. The fourth question. Who goes to hell? Such a horrible place. Certainly it is. Who is it that would go to such a place? I mean, what do they have to do to go to a place like that? I think it's important to begin this conversation by talking about why hell was created. Because sometimes in the back of our minds we may be thinking, well, why would God create a place like that for us? The truth is, He didn't create that place for us. Jesus Matthew chapter 25 verse 41 says, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You see, it was never in the mind of God. Uh, I say that based upon uh, the, the concept of why he created it. He did not create hell, the lake of fire, 
for people. What he created for people was the Garden of Eden. God wanted us to exist in the Garden of Eden. He wanted us to exist in this perfect environment. And yet because man sinned against God, rebelled against God, broke God's word to them, his command to them, then they were removed from the garden. The Bible says because one man sinned, sin came upon all of us because we have all sinned. We are all sinners, Romans 3.23 says. We fall short of God's glorious standard. Okay, so who goes to hell then? The question is answered for us. The devil and his angels. You see, at one time back in, in the past, at what point I don't know, but at some point back in the past, the devil rebelled against God, tried to raise his throne above God's to where he could receive the glory that belonged to God, and a third of the angels followed him in that rebellion. And God looked and said, you will not steal my glory. It's a very dangerous thing to try to steal the glory of God, by the way. He said, you will not steal my glory. He was kicked out of heaven, and there was a place awaiting him someday called a lake of fire. Now, what a scary, scary thing. Is that any better? What a scary, scary thing. I want to give you one final question. And this will kind of follow up on the fourth question that will show us a little bit more. And this helps us end on a much better note. And that is... How do you avoid it? How do you avoid hell? Now I think that's a really important place for us to end this discussion. Because the truth of the matter is, because of my sin, the Bible says I fall short of God's glorious standard. The standard that God sets in order for me to avoid the judgment and wrath of God in the place called the lake of fire forever and ever is perfection. The problem is, the first part of that verse says we have all sinned. And therefore, none of us make it to that level of perfection. None of us achieve the level necessary to avoid the judgment and wrath of God in a place called hell. It's not possible for us to do that. But it must be possible in some way. Or we wouldn't be talking about this right now. And so what is that way? God looked upon the plight of mankind. And he recognized our helpless and hopeless condition. He realized that without godly intervention that there was no hope for any of us. That we would spend eternity Paying the price of our own sin. You see, sin demands a payment. And that payment is death. Eternal death. Eternal separation from God. And if I choose, I can accept that responsibility myself. And I can pay for the price of my own sin. But as I mentioned earlier, the sin debt will never be fully satisfied. And therefore, the payment will continue forever. But God, seeing our helpless condition, set a plan in place by which Jesus Christ, God's own Son, would sacrifice Himself. 
that Jesus Christ would put the sin of the world upon himself, would go to the cross, and there he would bear the judgment and wrath of Almighty God upon the sin upon himself. Can you imagine? Before Jesus went to the cross, he bore the wrath and the judgment of mankind. It was very brutal. It was very harsh. But I don't think it was anything compared to the judgment of God being poured out upon him for the sin that was upon his body. And there on the cross, Jesus completed the assignment. At the end of his life, as he was breathing his last, he said, It is finished. The job I have come to accomplish is complete. Jesus was taken from the cross. His body was laid in a grave. Three days later, though, God stamped His seal of approval upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ by raising Him back to life again. And the Bible says that if we will confess that Jesus is Lord, if we will confess that Jesus is Lord over all, that Jesus died in our place, and that God raised Him to life three days later, we can be saved. So then how do we avoid the awful reality of hell? It's by understanding that we can do nothing about it on our own. It's by understanding that there is no possible way for me to change my eternal destination on my own. It's by me understanding that I can't give enough and I can't be good enough to go to heaven on my own. That I desperately, desperately need a Savior. I desperately need Jesus Christ. And by recognizing my desperate situation, calling out to Him, calling out to God and saying, God, I understand I am a sinner. Please forgive me. I claim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of my life. The Bible says in Romans 10, 13, Whoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now what does that mean? That means at that point forward, there's a change in my life. It doesn't mean that I won't sin. It doesn't mean I won't rebel. But it does mean that there is a difference in my life. And it will be a noticeable difference. So what do we do with this information? You know, as I was thinking about this, I thought of three things. Number one, I think for those of us who know Christ as Savior, it ought to make us incredibly thankful for what Jesus did for us. To know what hell is like, to know what we've been saved from, to know what Jesus did in order for us to be rescued from our sin, it ought to make us so thankful and so grateful. But number two, it ought to also make us want to live more like Christ. You did that for me. I just want to serve you. I just want to obey you. I want to live in rightness before you. But number three, for people who do not know Christ, I hope this morning that you have seen what awaits you if you die in that condition of rejecting Jesus Christ as Savior. 
And what I'm praying is that today will be the day that you decide, you know what, I'm, I'm not putting this off any longer. I want to get this straightened out today. You may say, Tom, that's me. How do I do that? Let me tell you the easiest way. In just a minute, I'm going to ask you to stand. The instrumentalist and Jason will come and they're going to lead us in a song that we refer to as an invitational song. It's just opening up a time of invitation where I'm extending an invitation to you now and you're responding to that. And I'm going to invite you at that time just to make your way to the aisle that's closest to you and just meet me right here at the front. I know that's a hard step. But then we're not going to try to embarrass you from there. Not going to point you out, not going to call your name. But we'll have someone who is trained in God's Word show you God's plan of salvation so you can know right now. If you'd like to know that, and I want you to respond to what God is calling you to do, would you do that? If there's somebody on your heart you know or you believe is probably not a Christian, not a child of God, then I wish that you would just come and find a spot up here and pray for them. And say, God, I want you to make me a witness for you. I see the awful reality of hell. And I want to be a witness to tell my loved one, to tell my family member, to tell my friend about Jesus Christ so that they can avoid the awful reality of a place called hell. So the invitation is there. That's what I feel you should do with this information. That you should do what I've already done and just surrender to what God's called you to do. So now, will you do that?